In its quest to provide an open forum for discussion of controversial issues, this station allows hosts and their guests to express themselves without any significant censorship. You're advised that any views expressed by the hosts or their guests are not necessarily the views of Tuggy Entertainment or its partners. Welcome to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney. Vivian is here to talk to you, to encourage you, and to show you how she had a successful homeschooling experience with her Wildflower Academy, and that her kids turned out great, and that with God's help, you can create the same experience she did. From her beginnings in Hostert, West Germany, to Dallas, it's been quite a journey, and her abilities to adapt, survive, and thrive are what make her unique in homeschooling. So have your pen and paper ready. It's The Sociable Homeschooler. And now, here's your host, Vivian McNinney. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Psalm 19, verse 14. Good morning and good afternoon. Welcome to The Sociable Homeschooler. My name is Vivian McNenny, and I'm going to be bringing you homeschool insights and delights from our household, where God dwells in a life that's often ordinary, always busy, and sometimes exciting. Each week, I invite a guest to join me for part of the show to talk about aspects of family life, which usually relates to homeschooling and always speaks straight to the heart of parents who place the responsibility of child rearing above their highest joy. I come to you with an English accent from the Lone Star State where everyone thinks I hail from far away East Texas. I do come from very far away East London to be precise. My guest today is Kim de Blakehall who is going to be making the connection for us between Magnitsky and Yakovlev, adoption and freedoms, waiting on the Lord and patience, hoping and reading God's word. Kim holds a remarkable story in her heart that she's going to be sharing with us a little bit later on. It's time for Elevensies, a morning break to tide me over until lunch. Tea and biscotti today. Yep, I'm still working on the Christmas baking. I'll be talking about stress, saving the day to epiphany and job quitting as I ease gently into 2013 and wonder whether I'll ever get back into a routine. Talking about routines, did I ever tell you about the year when my routine just never got back into its groove? It had been one of those crazy summers. We had always had crazy summers, but come the end of the summer, we were always able to get back into our nice little routine. All my children were in musicals under the same roof, but with two different organizations. My blue-eyed cowboy was crew on the main musical in the large auditorium, and I was stage manager in general factotum for the children's production in the black box. Our hours overlapped somewhat, except the children got finished around 9.30 or 10, and the adults kept going until 11 or midnight, depending on whether it was tech week. So we, the family, stayed up late because we always just traveled in one car to save gas. Then there was ballet workshop in the morning, so we were busier than bees during honey-making time. And to do this, uh, all of this and the play dates and the swimming activities we usually participated in. And then our oldest son wanted to take his SAT, and then he wanted to apply to the local community college, meaning he had to prepare for a five-hour test. This was in the days before it was all computerized. So in addition to all of the lovely, pleasurable activities, we had to fit in an intensive course of academics to prepare somewhat for the reading, writing, and math testing. Then there was the annual trip to Galveston. 
system when everyone else who didn't homeschool returned to public school and we could have the beach to ourselves, except for the occasional wash-up of jellyfish or turtles or a red tide. Interesting times, but routine-free. By the middle of this particular September, I was ready to get back on my ship-shaped schedule. My oldest son passed all of his tests admirably, went for an interview at the college, suitably impressed the admissions officer at 15, and was allowed to take a college class or two as long as it didn't interfere with my school. That was their rules. So I had a 15-year-old college student, a 13-year-old who had just qualified to volunteer at the animal shelter, an 11-year-old who decided her passion was piano, which I couldn't play, so we had to seek outside tutorials, and a 9-year-old who was in love with ballet. My day-to-day changed drastically with the addition of college Two afternoons a week, I drove my son to class, because, of course, he wasn't driving, with the other children where we worked in the college grounds or hallways, reading, drawing, memorizing, whatever. Then I had the mad dash to evening activities, ballet, theater, piano, animal shelter. And in the mornings, our routine stayed more or less the same. And I kept thinking that after a couple of weeks, things would calm down. But when Christmas break rolled by with still no sign of regularity... I came to the realization that this was my routine, the non-routine of running around, taking children to various activities where they, before they had all done the same thing. And so it went on for years. I never got back into a routine. At least they were old enough to remind me when they had a class or homework due, which was probably part of the problem because I was no longer totally responsible for their activities. I still doggedly wrote out a schedule that included an exercise program for me while my girls babysat. And I found that lunchtime came around too quickly. And before I knew where I was, we were on the way to college only two days a week. But that affected the other days somehow with homework and projects, deadlines and bonus events. The schedule fell by the wayside after a day or two, but it was always there to reassure me if I wanted to pull it out and take a look. Much as I love routine, I find it hard to get into one these days. Folk call on the phone and all of a sudden all the best laid plans are thrown skyward. Isn't it funny how a carefully planned day can be totally disrupted by a series of events that spiral out of my control? I read somewhere that life is the interruptions in our days, and I'm finding it to be true now that I have no hard and fast reason to stick to a routine. Hello, Tina in California. Welcome to your world. I say to my gallant Texan, we can just not be here, but he won't ignore the phone just as I won't ignore the visit of a child as he or she gently knocks on my office door with a pot of coffee, a biscuit and a conversation. But I'm so grateful to have this radio show to keep me focused for one hour a week and my blogs and essays to keep me accountable for my life. I sit down in the morning after my devotions, prayers and tea, yoga and shower, and give myself three hours a couple of times a week to write my blog and essays, points of interest for homeschoolers. Then I take a break with my cowboy and we have lunch and coffee in the kitchen table, at the kitchen table, or outside if the weather is clement. Then I return to the computer, perhaps to tweet or write headlines or research hashtags, just for an hour or so, if I can. Unless I have a meeting about the wedding dress, which, by the way, was impossible for mere rookies to bustle. 
after an hour of experimenting with a friend of mine, we suggested the bride-to-be go back to the boutique where she bought the creation and help seek help and guidance from the experts in the shop. And we found out it was a very complex procedure that would require 16 buttons and loops, all colour-coded, so not a simple three-gather affair at all. Was I relieved? I was beginning to feel like a right doozy. But my friend last week, who was slaving over a hot stove during my show, ha ha, gave me a great lunch, doozy or not, four different kinds of salads. Two were her mother's recipes. One was an old family friend's recipe and one was her mother-in-law's recipe. I especially enjoyed the hot fruit. I don't know. I never think about hot fruit, but I guess you have hot apples in hot apple pie. So I guess I do eat hot fruit. I just don't usually just eat it as a casserole. It was a birthday lunch for me. And as a gift, what do you give someone who no longer needs anything? She went all nostalgic. She gave me her nun's rosary, one she'd asked her mother for when she was eight and had wanted to become a nun, as all good Catholic girls aspire to at least once in their lifetime. So it was 54 years old. My friend is older than me, just in case you're doing the math, and I don't think there's enough information in the problem to garner an answer, so you can give up. The rosary brought back memories of my school nuns and their beads hanging off the cincture around the waists of their habits, clicking as they patrolled the hallways of the convent. I have draped it on the predio shipped home from England, a perfect gift for me. Thank you, Pamela. We went to Lindale last weekend, and my mother-in-law was still sick, um, we had an estate agent come look around the house to give us a valuation because time has come to move her closer to us, to Dallas. Then she started to say that instead of her trusty son taking her to the doctor first thing the next morning, that she would ask her neighbor to take her in the afternoon because Monday mornings were really bad times to go to the doctor. And I, with all the authority learned from dealing with my parents, said, you're going tomorrow morning, first thing. And she started back in her chair in compliance, muttering something about not wanting to be a burden. Neighbours are okay, but don't bother family. That night, every time I woke up, I chastised myself for being too severe on her and kept seeing her look of shock as she realized I meant business. My English accent makes me sound stern sometimes. Anyway, her dutiful blue-eyed son took her at 6.30 a.m. the next morning. And after two hours, it was discovered that she had some kind of bacterial infection. And so she needed stronger antibiotics. And several tests were set up to check her heart, her arteries, uh, and the blow that she had received her head when she fainted and woke up on the floor. So my admonition was well-founded. And in her absent-mindedness, she kept thanking her son for making her go. So I needn't have worried. We gently took the tree down on Sunday. I have to say gently because if any of you have ever taken a tree down with children, it's probably worse than putting one up with children. Because it was just the two of us, we were able to carefully wrap and box and lay all the baubles on tissue paper in their storage boxes. And woe of woes, I found enough chocolates still hanging on the branches to fill two candy jars. Now we're in the season of Epiphany, the second season of this new year. Some of the church readings are absolutely beautiful and uplifting. After all, Epiphany means a realization, a sudden seeing, an aha moment. And Isaiah especially wrote particularly beautiful aha poetry. 
as a prophet who shares with anyone who will listen his words from the Lord, whom he knows intimately through prayer and dwelling in the word and listening closely. They're gems that we read and hear for the next few weeks at church. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to comfort all who mourn, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair, Isaiah 61. And so it goes on, talking not necessarily about healing and renewal from the outside, but really about how by knowing God we will be transformed from the inside out knowing that our future lies in another world with our Father in heaven. And I have to go on a break now, but... Do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Tune in to the Travel Chick Show with Bonnie Kitohata, Mondays at 4 p.m. Pacific here on the Rockstar Radio Network. Bonnie will share with you an hour of travel ideas, experiences, adventures, and tips from her guests. Topics range from local day trips to international excursions. From organized professional vacations to spur-of-the-moment getaways. For fun or business, groups or solo, by bus, car, plane, train, boat, bike, hike, or horse, you'll also hear about travel-related subjects like cultures, travel photography, keepsakes, and more. Whether you love to travel yourself or you enjoy seeing the world vicariously through others, join us and enjoy travel stories from around the U.S. and around the world. For more information on The Travel Chick Show, check out Bonnie's website, thetravelchick.com. Then join us for the show, The Travel Chick Show, live Mondays at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, with your host, Bonnie Kitohara, here on the Rockstar Radio Network. Why do I feel so lousy? Why are my medications working? Why can't my doctor figure me out? These are just a few of the questions Dr. Kevin Connors will be exploring in Dr. Kevin Connors Live on Toginet.com. The author of the book, Help My Body is Killing Me, Solving the Connections of Autoimmune Disease to Thyroid Problems, Fibromyalgia, Depression, ADD, ADHD, and more. He'll dig into these and many other conditions to dissect the mechanisms of your problems. Giving God the glory and looking for answers to make you look and feel better. To make you feel whole again. For more on him, his book, and the show, check out UpperRoomWellness.com. Never be satisfied with a diagnosis. There is always a reason behind it. And if you can alter the mechanisms that led you down your current path, we can change your future. It's Dr. Kevin Connors, live here on Togginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney. The show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNinney. Today is Kim de Blaycourt, a woman who is going to help us get our heads around the Sergei Magnitsky and Dima Yakovlev bills. Say no more, just listen up. 
Kim has written a book with Ginger Kolbaba entitled Until We All Come Home, published by Faith Words in November of last year. She writes a blog at Nourished Hearts to encourage and create community around those who are adopting or have adopted, provide foster care and or work in orphan care ministry internationally. Her ministry aims to help others deal with the specific issues caregivers face with children who come from hard beginnings. Kim also worked in corporate America for 13 years as a trainer and in human resources. Welcome, Kim, and thanks so much for joining me this morning. Thank you, Vivian. I'm excited to be here. Well, good, good. Well, um, before we get into um, you and your personal story, I want to do a little bit of background first because there's something that's been going on in the news that is very current and um, speaks to a lot of us, I think. Um, two bills have been passed that have changed the landscape of Russian adoptions for Americans. Um, can you tell us a little bit about them? Yes, the first one has basically been dubbed the Sergei Maganitsky bill. Uh, the the full name is the Sergei Maganitsky Rule of Law and Accountability Act of 2012, in case you were interested in it. Um, House Rule 4406, for those of you who are very politically inclined. Uh, the, the, the basic of the bill, it's a very serious bill. I don't mean to laugh about it, because what it's doing is it's addressing human rights violations that have been going on in Russia for years. Sergei Maganitsky was not the only person that was being addressed in this bill. He was one of 23 Mm-hmm. people that have either been killed outrightly in a very pointed way or bodies are still missing. Mm. And they were all involved in exposing corruption acts in Russia mm-hmm. or Russian territory. Okay, so but corruption across the board, not just corruption in one particular area. Exactly. But the bill was named for Sergei Maganitsky, and there is the tie to our story that you hear about later on, in that when... Maganitsky was arrested because he was uh, working as an anti-corruption lawyer, but he also was the lawyer for a U.K.-based capital firm called Hermitage. Mm -hmm. And uh, the officials in Moscow denied his visa that he had already been given and actually asked the leader of that financial group to leave. He had to go back to the U.K. But that left Sergei there because Sergei was Russian. Mm Mm-hmm. And what he uncovered was a huge tax fraud. Mm -hmm. People had come in, taken over the firm, and claimed fraudulent tax refund documents against the own government. So they didn't steal from the U.K.-based firm. They stole from their own government to the tune of $230 million, Mm -hmm. the largest tax fraud scheme ever in Russian history. Mm -hmm. However, Russia has yet to admit that it was a tax fraud scheme. As a matter of fact, what they did is they arrested Sergei. Mm -hmm. But before they did, he got out the list of 60 names of the people that he had uncovered and alleged were involved in this fraud. Mm -hmm. For the Russian government, according to their own law, had one year to either charge him or release him, and eight days before that one-year anniversary, he died. Mm -hmm. A couple days later... It came out from different Russian officials that, yeah, well, he was probably beaten to death, Mm. although there was a long year's worth of different tactics used, and he was never afforded medical treatment. Mm. So the bill was named in him, but it's really on behalf of all of these people. Now, 
it got signed um, by President Obama last December 14th of 2012, but it's been years in coming. Maganitsky died in November of 2009. Now, um, so what does the bill in effect, what does it say? Or, you know, what, what is it about? It bans these, this list of 60 names from entering the United States, from having any holdings here, or from even doing any investing in our banking system. Ah, okay. And these are all Russians? Yes, or in Russian territory. Or in Russian territory. And you said that Sergei himself is a Russian, was a Russian, although he was working for a British company. Right. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, I mean, how do you know anything about how the British company has reacted to this? Well, the, all the Western com- countries uh-huh. have uh, really were in an uproar the entire time. As a matter mm-hmm. of fact, I believe that the United States probably took the most time to do anything about it. Mm. Mm-hmm. But it was also pro- pretty heavy-handed, according to the Russians, and that's why Putin said, look, if you take this, method, me- this measure, we're going to retaliate not only equally, but m- above and beyond that. Mm-hmm. And Enter so- the Dima Yakolov bill. The Dima Yakolov. And so Putin, when, when did this bill happen? Later on in December? Yes, yes. Uh, basically about a week later, it was December mm-hmm. 20, was it 6th or 8th that it was signed mm-hmm. to go in effect January 1 of this year. Okay. But, there, you know, in, in the history of that bill is that Putin recognized rather quickly that barring Americans from entering Russia or owning homes there or investing there wasn't going to really do anything. Mm -hmm. That There's not a lot of Americans that do that. Mm -hmm. So, um, and he had already kicked out USAID and a bunch of NGOs. I mean, there wasn't, like, there was Americans working there that really needed to to stay. So he, that's why he needed to go above and beyond. Mm -hmm. And in the Russian media view, Americans have treated the orphans they've adopted from Russia terribly. In the Russian. And I know this because I was there in Ukraine mm-hmm. for a year, and mm-hmm. I saw the media and the response that the Russians living in Ukraine had. Mm-hmm. And in their media view, every time, you know, over the history since like 1991, 1992, when the USSR fell, mm-hmm. any time an orphan died, it was huge news in Russia. Mm-hmm from any country, but especially the United States. There's Mm -hmm. a special uh, hate relationship, animosity there. And they kept score. Mm. And every time another orphan died, there would be another huge uproar in the media, Mm -hmm. and they kept propelling it. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's different than what we look at. You know, as Americans, we look at it and we say, well, yeah, but how many hundreds of thousands of your orphans have died in your country since that time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that are going voiced, unvoiced and, mm-hmm. and uncounted? Mm-hmm. But the, the Russian people don't look at it that way. No, no. Well, it's their government that doesn't look at it that way and the propaganda their government. that goes out, right? Exactly. That's a, that's yeah. a, a distinction we need to make. Yeah. And uh, so Dima so, Yakolov was one of those orphans that died. So they retaliated with the Dima Yakolov bill that got signed, and it 
basically banned Americans from adopting Russian children with the promise. Now, this hasn't happened yet, but it's been stated that other Western countries will soon be named in the same bill, basically blocking all of Russia's orphans from being adopted. Yeah. You know, and you, you, you hear these kinds of stories and you think the government just obviously doesn't care about the impact of something like that. They're, they're just using people as pawns. And in this case, they're using the orphans and the people that want to adopt them just to further their own little power play that they're conducting against another, you know, world power, which to me just is just, I don't know. I'm just so glad that we live in a, in a, in a free country. It just makes you appreciate it, doesn't it, that we live in America, even though America has um, her own set of problems. You know, that kind of thing is not allowed to happen in America. And if it does, gosh, something's done about it pretty fast. Yes, nothing that overtly. I don't, no. don't get me wrong. I don't believe that America is as pro-adoption or pro-orphan care as they could be and not by a long shot. But mm-hmm. yes, nothing like this. The two cannot be compared. And I'm not even sure that it's the Russian government on the whole. I really think it's this one person in power. Yes. This one I mean, leader that has especially been, you know, aggrieving this situation to the point mm-hmm. that even his own people are calling out. I remember seeing a photo out on Reuters where uh, um, during a, a demonstration, it was a very small demonstration, maybe 15 people, demonstrating against Putin signing this bill. And one person had a sign up in Russian that read, you forgot a name on that list, Putin. Mm. Mm. So, I mean, mm. that their own people are getting very voiced. I mean, that's a very strong thing to say in, in, in Russia. Mm to be able to hold a sign up against him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure that that was quickly disbanded and, and gotten rid of. But the, I think the, the problem there, there's still some wrangling going on. I don't want everybody just to say, oh, this is terrible, it's all done, there's nothing we can do. There's, there was a measure signed by um, Secretary of State Clinton and her equal in Russia that was an adoption treaty. And in that treaty it said, that, look, if, if you're going to change anything on this treaty, you have to give us a year's notice. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Putin only gave like a week's notice, a little mm-hmm. less than a week yeah. in signing this bill. So there's still some wrangling going on, and there's still a glimmer of hope. There's mm-hmm. still a glimmer of hope that those that are currently involved in Russia adoptions, I believe there's approximately 50 or 52 families involved that they may be able to finish, and there's still a glimmer of hope on this whole idea of, coming in under special needs, children only can be adopted. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's still some things going on. Um, just when it looks good, uh, hopes are crushed again. There's already been some ups and downs with this, so it's not over. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, you, um, I read somewhere that there were 40 or 50 families who are actually in the process of adopting now, and at, at the moment I'm... I'm imagine that things have been halted until they've decided exactly how they're going to deal with those. And, um, you know, it's, it's every single child you've written on your, one of your magazine covers, the lengths God will go to save one orphan. I mean, it's in, it's, this is important stuff. You know, you think, oh gosh, 50 isn't that many in this big scheme of millions of people and, and orphans, but we have to go on a break and we'll come back in just a moment. 
How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. If you're ready for a big change in your work, your career, your happiness, your life, it's time for the Million Dollar Mindset with Marla Tabaka. Monday afternoons at 2, 1 central on Toginet.com. Marla believes that with the right mindset, anything is possible. Join us as successful life coach Marla Tabaka inspires you and her clients to explore, discover, and live your dreams by developing what she calls the Million Dollar Mindset. Marla will inspire you to take action on your dreams and reveal secrets to success that will help you realize your own unique power. Tune into the Million Dollar Mindset for heartwarming stories with Marla Tabaka. Learn tips and tricks to building a successful business and unlock the secrets to creating a happier, more balanced life through abundant thinking and attraction power. For more information on the Million Dollar Mindset, go to our website, MarlaTabaka.com. That's M-A-R-L-A-T-A-B-A-K-A.com. It's the Million Dollar Mindset with Marla Tabaka. Monday afternoons at 2, 1 p.m. Central on Toginet.com. Get ready to learn and play with Mrs. A, your host, Barbara Allison. Mondays at 11 a.m. Central on the Rockstar Radio Network. Did you know that kids are only 20% of the population, but they are 100% of the future? How are you preparing your child for that future? The years between the ages of 0 and 6 are crucial for learning and development. Barbara Allison is a teacher, parent, and author on supporting children's early learning. Learning starts even before a child is born, and parents are children's first teacher. Join Mrs. A for ideas, tips, and suggestions for fun learning and play activities as she helps you support your child. Starting early is starting smart. For more on Mrs. A, her books, the show, and her blog, check out her website, 123kindergarten.com. Then, come learn and play with Mrs. A with your host, Barbara Allison, Mondays at 11 a.m. Central on the Rockstar Radio Network. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNinney. Right, well, Kim, we got the political stuff out of the way, and I now would like you to um, tell my listeners your story, you have adopted um, a young boy from Russia, from the Ukraine, and um, your adoption process began before this, um, this you know, crisis that occurred. Um, but it still wasn't easy for you by any means. Um, would you tell us a little bit about um, your story? First off, why Russia? Why did you, why did you choose to adopt a child from Russia? It was where God broke my heart for mm-hmm. the orphan and street children's plight. Mm-hmm. I had never seen children living off the street with absolutely no family or parental supervision in my life mm-hmm. until I was part of a, a trip to Ukraine. Our church has a long-standing relationship with Ukraine. We've built churches there. We send groups of people every year. It's a, about 20 years now that our church has had this relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as part of one of those groups, uh, as we were visiting the city of Odessa on our way home, mm-hmm. I saw two little guys crawl up out of a manhole. Mm-hmm. And I said, when I finally got the attention of the uh, translator, I asked, uh, why are they playing down there? 
you know, there was no lid around. I didn't even understand how they could get down there, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I made the assumption that they were playing. He said, oh, mm-hmm. they're not playing. They're living down there. You see, it, mm-hmm. it, it's still communist-style heating and water, and so the water is, is boiled in a central point, and then it goes through pipes to get to the different areas, mm-hmm. and they lay on those hot water pipes at night to stay warm. Mm-hmm. Was oh, his explanation goodness. to me, and so I wanted to help them because they were coming toward us. He said, "Oh, yeah, they're going to ask you for money." And, oh, okay, yeah, I'd, lo- I'd at least like to feed them a meal while we're here. No, 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 you don't give them any. You can't give them any money. You don't understand. You could put them in harm's way. They could be mugged for it down mm. the street. Mm. I mean that they're treated terribly in our country, and it's, it's it's really you know a shame on our country for the way that we we treat these children. Right and. It just broke my heart. As a matter of fact, the next day when we were leaving, I was still just so beside myself to see such obvious need. These little guys were so dirty. I don't know how long it had been. Mm-hmm. Since they, and their clothes were so worn. The seams were eaten away. The one guy's uh, jeans looked more like a skirt. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just it was just heart-wrenching for me, and they were so young, and they were so, so small. So, Kim, these children are... The cho- these are these are children that are living on the streets. These are children that Westerners or anybody, even Russians, wouldn't have access to to adopt. No, but okay. a lot so, of them that are living on the street have are in fact orphans that have perhaps decided to run away from the yeah. conditions of the orphanage. Mm-hmm. So, um, so the conditions in the orphanage doesn't necessarily mean that they're better off being in an orphanage than they would be on the streets. One would hope that they would be better off in an orphanage, but probably from what you're saying and some of the orphanages that I've been looking at, probably not. I suppose Mm -hmm. they feel they have more of a sense of, you know, uh, freedom. They can kind of get out there and fend for themselves. I have no idea. I mean, I can't even go there. Um, So you're you're saying that in Russia, they have this this problem of these street children um, living on the streets rough. They also have um, the orphanages that are full, and um, those are the places where we can go if we if we want if we feel our heart is moved to adopt, or where, as we start the process, those children are chosen from the orphanages. Correct. Yes, they have a, in Ukraine. They have a central authority called the SDA. It's the Special Adopt uh, Department of Adoptions and, and Youth. It's a long title, but it's, the acronym is SDA. You start there, um, and basically you're shown file folders mm-hmm. in an incredibly stark office mm-hmm. under uh, poor circumstances. The, the, the photos usually aren't current, not that that really matters, but mm-hmm. the information is hard to translate because they have even a different medical system than we do. They call things differently. Mm-hmm. Um, the social history is usually spotty at best, and they're just mm-hmm. like anxiously shaking their foot, choose one, choose one, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it's mm-hmm. a... a I actually found it quite a stressful environment. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, you're asked to select an orphan, and then you go visit them for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're doing this in Russia itself? In Ukraine. Mm-hmm. In, in Ukraine. Um, so you, you and your husband chose a child, correct, that you wanted to adopt. Was your husband with you? Yes, my husband yes. and our daughter. Yes. And for so a while, even my husband's father. Okay, so you went and chose, and, and so how long did it take you to choose your child? By, we had arrived there on May 12th, and we met our son on June 19th, so it was a little while. 
yeah, yeah, month. Um, but then the process then started to get um, very difficult. Was there a lot of paperwork? What, what, what happened? Because it took you a long time to actually bring your son to America. It did. The, uh, number one, it was a very hot political year because they were in their presidential election process that was going mm-hmm. to happen later that year. Mm-hmm. And some new political groups had formed during this time. And a lot of them had their, their one main area of dissent, their one main argument. They don't have just like two leading ones, you know what I mean? They'll have like 15 different groups, I'm just approximating here, yes, yes. That, that are much more equal in stature with each other than our two leading Republicans and Democrats. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a very broad field for their presidential election. And what we came to discover was that during this adoption process, there is a prosecutor to make sure that everything goes right, and it's a regular court process. You are actually issued an adoption decree. Mm-hmm. And what happened was we drew a prosecutor that was of a political party group that no longer supported international adoption for their country. Mm-hmm. And there were a group of them. He was the only one in that area that we were adopting from, but we heard of many families who were getting appealed while we were in Ukraine, and the the reasoning was going back to they no longer want international adoption as part of their country's makeup. Mm. It's a shameful thing for them, um, and they actually believe that those that their children would be better off being raised in orphanages, even if they were never going to be adopted by a Ukrainian, than going to another country. But there was a deeper thing involved as well, as um, uh, one gentleman explained to me. There was also uh, the importance being placed on their country's admittance into the European Union. Mm -hmm. And a lot of countries see ending international adoption as a as something that needs to be done before they will seriously be considered to EU admission. Mm. Really? It is of their mindset. And that was explained to me by uh, numerous people in Ukraine. Mm. It is a commonly held belief that Mm. if we ever want to get into Ukraine, I mean, into the EU, we need as Ukraine to stop international adoption. So are there Russians um, adopting their orphans? Or is it the same everywhere? They just want the babies, they don't want the older children? Or it, it, it is a lot of that. It's really, um, in Ukraine, I feel that they are stepping up. I believe the church in Ukraine is stepping up. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, they're having an orphan, the importance of caring for the orphan summit in the capital city of Kiev, Ukraine, next month. Mm-hmm. The first one ever. I mean, that that they really are stepping up, but there are certain groups and pockets of orphans that will never be adopted there. Any special need. Mm. I mean, they don't, their country doesn't accommodate special needs like ours does. Mm. You're not going to see wheelchair ramps. You're not going to see a lot of wheelchairs. I mean, you're not going to see the provisions or like, you know, how McDonald's has a program for those with special needs can work at a McDonald's and be well supervised and cared for and, 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 and contribute to society, you're not going to see that kind of thing in the country of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And definitely, um, even certain things that we take for granted, like um, one positive HIV test at birth, 
enough to commit an orphan to orphanages for the rest of his life in Ukraine. Really? There's just not the uh, the same mental, uh, the, not the same way of thinking about it, yeah. let yeah. alone one that is actually HIV positive. I mean, so there are different yeah. classes there. Yeah. Um, so how 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 were the Ukrainians with you? How did you how did you find the people? You know, did they were they welcoming? Were they suspicious of you? Did they like Americans or not? What was the general feel? Um, that varied among people. Mm-hmm. The Christians saw understood. You know what I was doing, and and they understood the need, and they actually wanted their children adopted because they knew that they would always be shunned in the country mm-hmm. of Ukraine, whereas mm-hmm. they would be special and cared for in another country, and they, and they understood that. Yeah. A lot of them were surprised that the prosecutor ended up giving us such a hard time and that he ended up appealing our adoption and that mm-hmm. this ended up dragging on month after month after month. Um, mm-hmm. They couldn't. They weren't surprised by it happening. They were surprised that the prosecutor was bold enough to do it to a foreigner. Yeah. They said, oh, this is nothing for us. We live yeah. this way all the time. That was the yeah. common response. Yeah, yeah. And so it took you um it took you a year and did you have to stay there the whole time? Yes, I never I left at one point to go into Poland by myself which was a whole other journey um mm-hmm. to get a visa to enable me to stay. It was very important to us that we followed the law. Yeah. We didn't want to be found um outside of the law ever. Mm-hmm. So I traveled to Poland, got a visa, came right back. It was less than a 48-hour trip total. Um, other than that, I never left the country. And you stayed in, in a home or in a, in a hotel? or what, what At was first, uh, first we stayed in a hotel. It drug yeah. out long, so I transferred to a flat. Yeah. And then after that, I lived with some friends that were actually working in Ukraine for a while. Yeah. And then we started to bring down things on their head, and then it just became a series of hotel room to flat, a hotel yeah. room to flat, yeah. and just basically straight, trying to stay off the grid so that we couldn't be found in case he wanted to cause us even more trouble. Trouble, yeah, yeah. Goodness me. Well, I'm talking to Kim de Blakehall, who successfully um, adopted a child from Ukraine. And um, she's been telling us her story, and um, we need to go on a break now. We'll be back in just a moment. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest in heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. 
This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on TogiNet. Everyday Autism Miracles with Shannon Pinrod. Friday afternoons at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Life after an autism spectrum diagnosis doesn't have to be difficult. It can be joyful, happy, and filled with hope. Join Shannon Penrod, author, speaker, coach, and mom of a six-year-old recovering from autism for this inspirational hour of hope. She's even authored a series of children's autism books with her son, Jim. For more information about the books, Shannon, and Everyday Autism Miracles, go to her website, shannonpenrod.com. From there, you can also get to her other websites, blogs, and connections. On Everyday Autism Miracles, you'll hear stories from parents whose children have made miraculous strides. You'll also get the inside dish on therapies, treatments, supplements, and how to get funding to help you afford them. Miracles abound in the autism community. So tune in for Everyday Autism Miracles to listen, share, laugh, and surround yourself with hope. Everyday Autism Miracles with Shannon Penrod. Friday afternoons at 2, 1 central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney. The show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginet. And now back to your host, Vivian McNinney. I know, Kim, we've hardly scraped the um, surface of your story, but you have written a book, and I know that people can buy your book at Christian bookstores, probably on Amazon. Is that right? Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere that books are sold. It's also available for Kindle, for the Nook, and as an audio book. Fantastic. And you yourself have a blog site where you write called Nourished Hearts. Yes. Correct. Nourishedhearts.com. Dot com. All right. Yeah. And also, I know your name can be Googled. We can Google Kim DeBlakewell. And I've got you on my um, on my page, on my radio page, too, with a link. So um, my listeners can go find you. They can go into the bookshops and, and find your book and buy your book and read your story, your, your um, oh, harrowing story of, of what you had to go through. And your son is well. He is. He's in kindergarten right now. Uh-huh. Uh, we weren't for sure. I thought I might end up being a homeschooling mom, uh-huh. uh, but he has uh, integrated well into a small private school uh-huh. here in in Michigan uh-huh. and is just doing great. Matter of fact, he's at the top of his class for reading. He's just all about reading right now. I just couldn't be happier. Well, wonderful. And is he a special needs child? We're not really for sure. There are sensory integration. Okay problems there um, that we're trying to help him with. He's been in therapy ever since we came home. Um, And I'm sure, I mean, he was institutionalized from day two of his life until he was almost four. Right. I mean, we there there is fallout, more emotional than anything. Yeah. Yeah. But I I, I guess I, in my heart, classify him that way, but scholastically, he's uh, doing well so far, but it's only kindergarten we're we're Mm -hmm. waiting to, to see. Mm-hmm. And how has this experience changed you, Kim? I was a stay. I became a stay-at-home wife and mom by choice, mm-hmm. and now I find myself traveling to different countries, mm-hmm. uh, 
feeding orphans. I have become an orphan advocate. I work with foodfororphans.org, a nonprofit organization that focuses on feeding those children that will never be able to be adopted, usually due to lack of birth records, Mm -hmm. making their um, admission to another country impossible. So now I not only have my two kids at home, I have over 100,000 orphans that I call mine in 16 different countries around the world. Well, I'm worried about those children on the streets, and I read about people who help children in um, Thailand and Southeast Asia. They call them children of the night. And, um, I mean, are there is there help for these children? Are there agencies, or are they just completely ignored? Um, there are NGOs, basically, that are in the country. I know the the... the NGO that I work with, Food for Orphans, has uh, developed a new program now that Mm -hmm. is already rolled out in most of our countries, not all. It is called the Backdoor Feeding Program. Mm -hmm. So out of the back door of the orphanages that we support, they are able to feed the street kids in their area. I mean, so there are people in there working, and I I actually volunteered with uh, two different agencies in Odessa, Ukraine, during when during the time I lived there, that were reaching out to the street kids themselves and trying to get them off the street. And they had dormitories set up. So, yeah, there are, there are people out there working, but the street life culture is a culture all its own. And I, I, I found many times that even once you got them off the street and you got them cleaned up and you got some weight back on them and maybe even put them through a rehab program because there's different street drugs in that culture, Um, that the call to return to that life is strong. Really? Really? Um, Yeah, I I wouldn't know where to start in a country. Now, would Russia be considered, is Russia a third world, second world country? It's considered a second world, as is Ukraine, but there are pockets of the country that are still operating in a third world Mm -hmm. capacity. The industrialization sets them apart from true third world countries, but out in the villages, Mm -hmm. out in the remote areas, which covers most of the land, um, uh, I consider it third world status. I mean, unless they're doing something out of their home, Mm -hmm. they're not working. Mm -hmm. There's no running water. They're still outside toilets. Mm-hmm. Um, and they uh, are getting water turned on maybe once a day from a local town, or mm-hmm. or they've had to have a well installed, or they're paying for their water. I mean, the mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Well, well, Kim, you have educated us this morning. Thank you very much, and um, I'm hoping that um, my listeners have enjoyed our conversation as much as I have enjoyed my conversation with you. I've been talking to Kim de Blaycourt about international adoptions. She explained to us about the Yakovlev bill and its impact on Russian orphans now that there's a ban on Americans and, and perhaps extending to all Westerners adopting from their country. Kim told us some of her amazing personal story of how she fled Ukraine with her adopted son. She's written a book about her experience until we all come home, A Harrowing Journey, A Mother's Courage, A Race to Freedom, published by Faith Words in November last year. So you can go and buy her book. You can also find her sensitive writing at nourishedhearts.com, where she writes a regular blog. Kim, thank you so much for joining me today and telling us what you know about international adoptions, getting our minds going, and um, have a good weekend. And I wish you every success with your book and blessings on your family. 
Thank you, Vivian, and um, I really enjoyed being here and, and finding out about the sociable homeschooler. Thank you. Well, good. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Well, go from orphans to our wedding plans. We're heading in the right direction. I told you about the bustle. But now I have sent out save the dates. And as I was doing it, I thought, well, if these were in an envelope, the form of address on the front would alert the receiver as to who was expected in the household to save the date. I emailed my friends and presumed that they would know that husbands were included. But I did have to spell that fact out to a few because there is another wedding in one of our groups. Well, listen to me, sounds as though I'm in therapy, my groups. I'm talking about my literary groups and my dinner club. Anyway, only the women have been invited from a particular group because of the restraint on numbers. So I need to be more specific on the wedding invitations. And we all went for a meeting at the church and the head of the wedding guild did say to make it quite clear who's invited and who's not, so we're not to assume anything. We walked the space at the church, and the happy couple signed lots of papers. The cake's been ordered, the DJ has been booked, the photographer is in place, the invitations have been designed. The only two things left are the flowers and the food, and of course my outfit. I told you I'd already got my shoes, didn't I? Well, I've worn them to one of our six parties that we had over the great season of Christmas and New Year that I'm still reeling from. And I'm wearing them right now, but I'm sitting down and that doesn't count as part of the breaking in and practicing to walk in six-inch heels process. And I almost forgot that one of the things we did over the long holiday was to go and see the Nutcracker. High heels reminded me because all dancers, when they're not in their ballet shoes, wear dizzyingly high heels. There are no exceptions to that. The ballet Nutcracker is delightful, and we forgot that we worked it as a family for what seems like 50 years as I sat seventh row orchestra in front of the stage. It's the first time I have ever seen the ballet from front of house. I've always been backstage and it was remarkable and all the memories that came rushing back to me were good. I'm so grateful that we stayed and it really started our Christmas season off magically and bathed me in a wash of happy memories and I don't care that I was humming the music for days afterwards. And another thing we did when we weren't partying at our house once all the entertaining was over, you know, around January the 3rd or 4th, we went to see the Chinese Lantern Festival at the state fairgrounds, which was lovely. We had to go in the evening, of course. Lanterns can hardly light up a place that already has the sun shining in it. There was a dragon made up of 15,000 pieces of china, plates, bowls, spoons and cups, all hand tied together. It was an impressive 330 feet in length and quite stunning. And the weather was colder than England. We had our long johns on and Uggs and earmuffs and gloves and scarves and jackets. But my hands were still freezing cold. I don't know why that happens. And I'll tell you what, the stress level in our house is quite high at the moment. You'd think after the holidays that things would go down, but of course we've got a new set of things going on. My blue-eyed cowboy's mum has decided that she really needs to live closer to us, so we're trying to find places where she could live. We're having car troubles, we're having children that are quitting their jobs, and we're selling silver. 
all the silver that she has just to get her some money. Relieving the tension is still top of my to-do list. I managed to get in a little bit about relieving stress last week before the end of the show cut me off mid-sentence. We got past the breathing and I had another thing to add to the breathing. In an exercise that I was doing this morning, Shadow's doing our Ujjayi breath, which is breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. As long as you don't have a cold, that works really well. But then at one point, Shadow's breathe out and then hold for 10 seconds without breathing in. Well, I panicked. It was like 10 minutes. I just could not hold it for 10 seconds without breathing in. And then we did that for a few times. And then we breathed in and had to hold on the in-breath. Now, on the in-breath, that was fine. There's something about having my lungs empty that kind of causes anxiety, not the kind of, you know, and when when my lungs were full, I was kind of like, it's like having a cupboard full of food. You know, you kind of look look at the shelves and you go, ah, I'm okay. But if they're empty... I don't know about you, but I start to get a little bit antsy. So I like to have breath in my lungs. So breathe when the milk gets spilled or grandma's coming and knocking. But if you're so het up that you can't calm yourself with a slow breathing, express yourself loudly. I'm not advocating that you hurl abuse at the culprit. Just let out a noisy breath, a hard and fast yell. It'll startle the children into stopping doing whatever it was that they were doing and you see time's caught up with me again and it is the end of my show and i hope you've enjoyed spending time with me and will join me again same time same place next week where my guest will be well you'll just have to tune in to find out. I'm off to the hairdresser in preparation for being a fabulous mother of the groom, and I've cleared my to-do list, so who knows what's in store for me this weekend. So without further ado, I'll say thanks to my handsome husband, who believes in love at first sight, our four children who are the result of that belief, the hard-working staff at Net Radio, my guest this week, Kim de Blakor, and you, my faithful listeners, listening to Ali Lepreet and to Sandy Fowler, and the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Thank you for joining us for The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney.